Welcome. My name is Adrian, and I'm one of the pastors here at Carnegie Free. Uh, if we haven't met, love to connect you after the service. Thanks for, for joining us on this scorcher. Don't see anyone melting. I think we'll be okay. If you need a water break in the middle of the service, by all means, yeah, I got mine, just in case. Um, we are uh, kind of coming across the final turn here in 1 Corinthians, and we've been in this series, Broken to Beautiful, for the past probably six months, and uh, we're going to wrap it up in the next two weeks. Next Sunday, we'll finish up 1 Corinthians 15. Today, 1 Corinthians 15, next Sunday as well. And then uh, 1 Corinthians 16 is kind of Paul's P.S. to to the Corinthian church and some good words for us as well. So we're coming to the end of this series. I hope it's been a beneficial one for you. It certainly has been for me. Are you amazed ever as we've gone through 1 Corinthians, like how true to life today Paul's words were way back in 50 A.D.? Does that ever surprise you? it's, It's really been encouraging for me on a number of different occasions to see the ways that that the Bible speaks to our lives still today, much in the same way as it did for people back then, which really shouldn't surprise us because the truth is humanity hasn't actually changed. Did you know that? Like the same basic human needs today are the same human needs back then. And the same fears and hopes and dreams that people have have not changed across the 20 centuries. We have these deep needs to be loved by God, to be loved by others, to feel like our life has meaning and purpose, and to get through the sticky thing that we have called a sinful nature that we all wrestle with. And so I'm grateful that the Apostle Paul has helped us in that. I hope it's been beneficial for you. And uh, today, again, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 15, if you want to turn there with me right now. And uh, I'm going to pray, and then we'll jump right in. Father in heaven, thank you for this morning. Thank you for every person here. Each and every one is made by you, created on purpose and with a purpose. Thank you, Father, that there are no accidents in this room, that you have plans for us. We thank you, Lord, that you sent your son, Jesus, that we might know you personally. And God, as we come into church today, we are all wrestling with different things. We have challenges in our lives. But whatever it is, we have the same need, and that's that God would come to help us and to provide us with a level of hope in the midst of the challenges that we face. And so, Father, whatever it is for us right now, we ask that you would take that, that we could hear a bit of what you have for us from your precious word. Thank you again for every person here and this opportunity we have to open up your scriptures. In the name of Christ we pray, amen. You know, if I was uh, called away from our church for a few months, uh, I'm not called away, but if I were called away from our church for a few months for like, say, a family emergency or you know, a medical issue that was gonna cause me to be gone for three or four months, I would write a letter to our church and I would write a letter to our staff and different leaders Um, with some instructions. And I would start with the main thing, the thing that's the top priority to me. And for us at this church, it's building a transformational community by growing in love with Christ and all people. That's our mission statement. And then underneath that, it would be 
hey, this is what we're about. We want to help people to join the mission. We want to help people to choose community, to embrace the gospel. And uh, we want to keep these things at the very top of our priorities. Our goal is not simply to bring bodies into this room, but to help people become disciples. And then after explaining that uh, to our staff and leaders and church, I would then take some time maybe to address issues that we're dealing with right now. Maybe there's a personnel issue. Maybe there's a, a conflict resolution issue that needs to be dealt with. Maybe there's an organizational issue or a finance issue, those kinds of things, which are important. But then I'd circle back around at the end of the letter to communicate the most important things again. What are our priorities? What are we going after right now? In case we've forgotten, let's remind ourselves again. My guess is if you lead any team, if you lead a family, if you're a coach of a team, if you are a classroom teacher and you were called away for a few months, you would probably think about things similarly. What are the top priorities that need to be communicated? What's some other stuff that we need to talk about? And then once again, what are the top priorities? And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul has done here in 1 Corinthians. As you think about this letter as a whole, where did he start? He started in chapter 1 with the gospel. He started with a focus on the gospel And then he proceeded to talk about some other stuff, and then he's going to return to the gospel again here today in chapter 15. Chapter 1 started like this. I preach the gospel, Paul says, not with wisdom and eloquence. Who really cares about human wisdom and eloquence? It's not about that. Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Not about me and my eloquence or any charisma that I do or do not have. It's about the cross of Christ. And so I preach the gospel, he says. And then, of course, he deals with idolatry and issues with men and women in the church and food that was sacrificed to idols and divisions and organizational stuff and uh, the gifts of the Spirit of God, all those kinds of things. So he's got priority, some important stuff, and now let's return again to the most important stuff, our top priority, which is the gospel. He starts with the cross, And then he closes out his letter with the resurrection. Basically, he says this, Dear friends, would you please prioritize this? Remember the cross of Jesus Christ that purchased our life and the resurrection of Jesus Christ that assures we have good reasons to believe. Here's how he begins and here's how he ends his letter. Listen now as he's making that final turn to wrapping this 16-chapter letter up. Uh, here in chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. Now, my brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as very first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, and then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the other brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still alive, 
though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Paul refers to himself this way on a couple different occasions in his letters. One abnormally born, he was most likely born with some disability. We're not told what it was particularly, but there was something that hampered his ministry at times. And he says, last of all, Jesus appeared to me. Interestingly, though it sometimes probably hampered him, he also notes in 2 Corinthians that it was that very thing which hampered him, which also enabled the grace of God to be more magnified through him. I hope you believe that in those areas that you think of troubles that hamper you. Now, the first thing to understand about this passage is Paul is quoting from this ancient creed. Looking at verses 3 through 7, these are not actually Paul's words. He's quoting something that was passed down to him and was distributed amongst the early Christians, kind of like the Apostles' Creed is distributed amongst people today. So Paul receives this. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 7, likely goes back to two or three years after the resurrection of Christ. And this was a stated belief that Christians would hold and they'd share with each other to say, this is what we believe about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and pass it on to one another in a culture that didn't have a whole lot of literacy. There's two of these creeds in the New Testament, this one, and then also one over in Philippians chapter two, verses six through 11. That's important because there's sometimes these debates, like did Jesus actually claim to be God? Maybe you've heard that, that people will philosophize about such things, but the earliest creeds, dating back to two, three years after the events themselves, Christians universally shared these things, which are written right here. Jesus was crucified. As we know, by Pontius Pilate, just as the scriptures foretold. And he was buried in a well-known tomb that was owned by a man named Joseph of Arimathea, who was a member of the Supreme Court. And he was raised on the third day, and he appeared bodily to over 500 people, believers and unbelievers, those who are faithful and those who are skeptical. Who are the skeptical people? Well, you have James the half-brother of Jesus, who's noted right here. And James is like, I'm not believing my brother's the son of God. You can't blame him, really. But then he saw the resurrection. He came to believe, though, that his brother was indeed the son of God. And you have the apostle Paul, who started off as a Christian hunter. And he persecuted the church. He even was part of killing early Christians. He was a part of the very first martyrdom, killing a man named Stephen. He was definitely a skeptic of Christianity, but then Jesus appears to him. He has a resurrection experience with Jesus, and he becomes not only a believer, but also an apostle as well. And Paul here, he takes the hard route. He's writing about 15 years after the events in 1 Corinthians, and he says, listen, if you don't believe me, go talk to those other 500 people. Most of them are still alive too. Again, you don't say these kinds of things if you're making it up. The early church is the story of women and men believing and preaching the cross of Christ and the resurrection of Christ, even when it would hurt them, and oftentimes it did. They took the hard route. They didn't say that Jesus was like resuscitated. Romans knew how to kill someone. Okay, they didn't say that. 
They didn't say it was like a spiritual resurrection. If that's what they said, they would have just gone to the tomb and said, well, there he is, and the whole thing would be over. They didn't teach that Jesus was reincarnated, as I've heard some people say over the years, that, oh, okay, Jesus was just reincarnated. Well, and reincarnation is nowhere in Jewish belief of the day, and it's nowhere found anywhere in the Bible. That's a later belief of other religions. No, they took the belief that Jesus was physically killed, buried in a grave, and physically raised bodily far from the dead. And friends, this is where we have our faith. We trust in him because he's conquered what no one else in all of history has ever conquered. And this stimulates confidence for us today through whatever hard times come our way. That he is who he says he is, and therefore we are who he says we are. The tomb is empty, and therefore our faith is full. Amen? The tomb is empty, and therefore our faith, our trust in God is full. I really hope that you get what Paul is saying here. He offers this declaration in verse 2. He says, By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly. By this gospel that I just spoke of, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, you are saved if you hold on to it firmly. Now you should receive a little bit of a warning there that Jesus is not after a lukewarm faith, is he? He's after men and women who would acknowledge though that he is Lord, that he rose from the dead, and I will hold on to that even when challenging times come my way, even when it feels like God is not answering my prayers the way I want him to answer my prayers, I'm going to trust because the grave is empty. Up on the screen, you'll see a little definition that we've used over the years for the gospel. I would really encourage everyone in this room either to memorize this definition or to come up with one of your own that is thoroughly based and soaked in the scriptures. This is not like a perfect definition. I'm not trying to say that, but this gives us some some hooks to hold on to as we would preach the gospel to ourselves. And Lord knows we need it every day. And as we would tell our kids and our neighbors and our friends about the hope that we have in Christ, would you please read this out loud with me? The gospel is the good news of Jesus' perfect life, death, and resurrection, which freely forgives and regenerates sinners and welcomes them into God's family. It's the good news. The word gospel means good news. That's what it means. And this is the good news of Jesus' perfect life, death, and resurrection which welcomes sinners like us into God's family, regenerates us, gives us a spiritual rebirth, such that yes, we are all still sinners, come on, we all are, but even more, you know what we are? We're saints. More than sinners, what God sees when he sees you through faith in Christ is the sainthood that is now yours through the blood of Jesus. More than sinner, you are a saint of God most high, regenerated by him, born anew, brought into his family with all the rights and inheritance of a son or daughter of the king. Good news. Good news. And we receive this in a very simple manner. It's simply admitting, I am a sinner. Every day. <laughs> At least the man that looks in the mirror. I am a sinner every day. 
And I admit it. No more hiding from it. And I believe, Jesus, that you died for me and you rose again even for me and the grave is empty. I believe it. A, admit. B, believe. C, is commit. I will commit myself now to following you. Even when times get tough, even when I feel like there's an unanswered prayer, I will commit myself to following you because you backed up everything you said by rising from the grave. And friends, well, when you believe this, not because of like some cultural benefits that might come your way by attending church, but you believe it's true that God has opened up the mansion doors of heaven to you through Jesus Christ, that gives you great hope. I have this burden. Sometimes it seems to me in the Midwest and in the South, People come to church because there's cultural benefits attached to being a good church person. I come from a place called Boulder County, Colorado. And there are no cultural benefits attached to going to church there. And so the result is you have some on fire, full of the Holy Spirit, awesome churches out there filled with people that are coming to church because they believe in it. For no other reason than they believe in it because there are not cultural benefits, there are cultural losses for going to church in that kind of place. Here's my burden. Please don't come to church just because it makes you a good person. Okay, if that's your reason for coming to church, save a seat for someone else. Okay? If you come to church and you're asking questions, fantastic. Almost all of us were there at one time. I certainly was. Come to church, ask questions, get your questions answered, grind with it, okay? Feel it, understand that this is a, a meaty and intellectual faith, but at the same time it's an existentially hopeful faith, and you're welcome here as long as you'd like, whatever you might believe. But if you come to church, bud, because it makes me a good person, and I get some cultural benefits out of it, I promise you this, that does nothing before the king of heaven. Nothing. And in fact, sometimes it fools people into believing they're Christians when they're not. Quiet in here. Here's what happens. Well, when you really believe this, look at verse 9. The Apostle Paul says this. This is remarkable to me. He says, I am the least of all the apostles. In fact, I don't even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. He's so vulnerable. He's so vulnerable here. <laughs> some Christians will never be vulnerable. Have you noticed that? Some Christians will never admit their mistakes. That's not Paul at all. I, I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet that even wasn't of me. It's not me, it was the grace of God that was with me. Okay, there's this vulnerable statement. He says, I'm, I'm not deserving. 
And yet God has saved me by the blood of Jesus and he rose far from the grave and so I trust in him, but I'm really not much. I'm the least of all the apostles. Like this level of vulnerable, vulnerability, see if I can say that word, vulnerability and transparency is amazing to me. Paul is trilingual. He was educated in like the Harvard of his day. He's one of the most persuasive and influential people in Western civilization history, and that's no overestimation. That is no exaggeration. He's changed the shape of Western civilization, and he says, I'm nothing outside of Christ. I don't even deserve to be called an apostle. He has this humility deep in his spirit, but because he knows it's about God and it's not about him. He'd say, along with John the Baptist, he must increase, I must become less. It's not about me, it's about the grace of God that is in me. The Apostle Paul has something though that I hope that I would one day be able to grasp. It's like a freedom of self-forgetfulness. He doesn't really care what other people think about him. He doesn't really care all that much about what he thinks about him because he's so consumed with what God thinks about him. And friends, if we get that wisdom of self-forgetfulness in us, it's amazing how much can be done for the expansion of the kingdom of God when nobody cares who gets the credit. The gospel of Christ's death and resurrection is true. We are really free to admit our failures and to be in process and to understand that any good gift we have is simply because of the manifold grace of God in our lives and we are free we are genuinely free to be a part of kingdom business regardless of what anyone thinks. Look at verse 12. Here are the stakes. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? There were some in the Corinthian church that said there was no resurrection of the dead. Jewish believers believed that there would be a resurrection at the end of time, that God would one day make all things new. We'll get to that more next week, but there were certainly Gentiles in the church as well who believed there was no resurrection of the dead. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But if he did not raise him, if in fact the dead are not raised, for if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. They're simply dead. They are no more. There's no hope. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Mm. Quite a statement. Now, the point in all of this seems to be something like this Without the resurrection, here are the stakes. Jesus is dead. We have no hope, and the church is useless. You can go home now. Well, that seems a little bit stark, Adrian. That seems a little bit extreme. You don't like your job anymore or something? No, it's not that. These are the stakes without the resurrection. Jesus is still in the grave. He's dead. 
We have no hope. And the church is a waste of time. Again, look at some of these passages though that I just read. Look at verse 16. If the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. He's in the grave. Look at verse 14. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. All that you do in the church is useless. It's a waste of time, and so is your faith. Verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You still remain in your sins. Think of someone like Mary Magdalene if you want to understand the gravity of this. So here's a woman who, of course, was demon-possessed, and Jesus released her of that demon. And in all likelihood, she was a prostitute, and Jesus forgave her of that. And she really hoped that Jesus was indeed the Savior and the Lord of the world, and her personal Savior. And so she puts her trust in him, and she begins to follow him. And here was a man, probably the only man that she had ever met, that gave her dignity. That treated her with love and respect in a dignified way. And so there she is at the cross, watching the one that she believed to be her savior suffocate. And so tears begin flowing down her face. As she realizes not only this man who gave me dignity, not only is he dying, but also with his death, there goes all of my hope. There goes any standing that I was given through him. I will just go back to being identified with demon possession and my previous sins, and the shame will be upon me once again. This is probably what she was thinking as she goes to the tomb on Sunday, and she's paying her respects, and you can imagine her limping toward that tomb, and her face is once again flushed well with tears because she assumes that he is dead, therefore she is still in her sins. Her faith is futile, her shame overwhelms her again, I am still in my sins. That was probably her emotion before she saw the resurrected Christ. But then verse 20. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as, as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn... Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. In verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Here's how Paul would put it. Without the resurrection, Jesus is dead. We have no hope, and the church is useless. But with the resurrection, Jesus is the living Lord. And we have hope in life and death. And the church is the light of the world. This is what we're made to be. We're made to be the light of the world because he lives. We get to shine his light to others. I don't know about you, Bob, but to me, like if a man claimed to be God as Jesus did, and he lived the kind of life that Jesus did, and he gave such dignity to people along the way, and he promised uh, that he would die for our sins, and then he would rise again, and he actually did it, wouldn't you believe everything that he says? 
Like, wouldn't you go with him in whatever place he took you? I sure would. One who conquered the grave and offered to me what he offered, I say, I'm going with him even if I don't have all the answers to my difficult questions. And friends, this isn't just like the most brainy stuff. Yes, there are really good reasons to believe that the grave is empty and Jesus rose from the the grave. Historically and philosophically, there are good reasons for that, but also this provides us with existential hope for the challenges that we face each and every day. Like, we're gonna talk about this more next week, but one day, Christ is going to return and he will set this world to rights and it won't be about anger and anxiety and fire and fury. It won't be about those things anymore. Sin will be no more. Crying will be no more. The dead will be raised to to be with Christ in paradise forever. And as Christ was raised, so also we will be raised with him. And friends, this is the good news that people need. Because a life devoid of hope is like bones without marrow. It just makes us brittle, easily broken, easy to be knocked over. And we have the meal to give to people. We have the meal in the scriptures to feed ourselves. People are needy for this. You know, the way we typically talk about hope is like this, this empty little wish. We, we tend to think of hope as like uh, a bet. Maybe this thing will, will work out. Maybe it'll happen for me. I really hope my Broncos don't finish last again. But like there's no evidence that that will happen, okay? Okay, so that's, that's just hope. It's, it's a wish. It's silly. It's nothing. Biblically, hope is this confident expectation that goodness will come to pass, that good things will come in spite of the challenges that are upon us right now. And I've just found over the years that I can live without a lot of things, but I cannot live without hope. Scientists tell us that a healthy human who's really fit can actually live without food for 40 days, can live without water for four days, probably not in 100 degree heat, but can live without water for four days. We even can live underwater and without air for four minutes. But I'm convinced that humans cannot live for more than four seconds without hope. Just such a deep need for us to believe that the burdens and the pains of this world do not have the final word. And friends, we have that hope. It's this deep conviction that Jesus Christ died for our sins and he rose again and therefore what we're going through is not the end. There's far better that is coming our way because Christ lives so also we shall live. One of my favorite authors, kind of a dead mentor of mine that I never got to meet is C.S. Lewis. Um, Someday I'll meet him and I can't wait. And Lewis... uh, You might know his story. He's written a lot of books, and maybe you read Chronicles of Narnia or some of his other wonderful books. He was a professor at Oxford and Cambridge in England, and he was also one who gave great hope to the entirety of the British Empire during World War II as he gave all these BBC addresses to England during World War II. Um, But before all that, he was a hardened atheist. 
And as a professor at Oxford and Cambridge, uh, he was professor of literature and he was a philosopher. And another one of his atheist colleagues, they would study the ancient books of the ancient world, and they are experts on all of that. And one of his colleagues just casually said to him, he said, you know, it, it is interesting that there's such good evidence for the resurrection accounts. And it's really odd to me that, like, the New Testament documents have been proven to be historically very reliable. And C.S. Lewis was bothered by that. And it became a pebble in his shoe that he couldn't get rid of. And so he decided to look into it as he did with other books of antiquity. And as he studied it, he realized that there's more evidence for the reliability of the New Testament than there is of any other ancient book. And as he studied some more, he came to believe that these resurrection accounts of Jesus in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John have a lot of good historical evidence for them. And he realized that if Jesus said the kinds of things that he said and did the kinds of things that he did, then he could not simply dismiss Jesus as yet another option on the cultural scene and just move on with his life. Like if someone claimed to be God and claimed to be the only way to God, then you'd have to wrestle with that. You can't dismiss him as yet another good moral teacher. And so Lewis wrote about that in his wonderful book, Mere Christianity, and he formed this argument that's become famous. It's called the trilemma. Let me read it for you. He writes, I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that many people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level of the man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be a liar like the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. He's a Lord, he's a lunatic, or he's a liar, but you cannot just call him a moral teacher. Let us not come to him with any of this patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Nope. He's Lord, or he's a liar, or he's a lunatic, but he's not one nice option amongst many that we can say, ah, maybe, maybe not. He's the king of the universe because he conquered the grave. And the question is, do you believe it? And then the other question is, do you live like it's true? Do you live like the resurrection happened? When you're mentoring a middle school student on Wednesday, do you live like the resurrection happened? When you're mentoring a student down at Emerson Elementary School with Kids Hope USA, sometime this fall you begin to mentor a kid here in our public schools, do you live like this happened? 
when you're giving comfort to a neighbor who just lost their parent to cancer? Do you believe the resurrection happened and it's the best news possible? When you're leading your life group, do you believe that you're leading news that is the best news this world has ever had or ever heard? Do we live like the resurrection is true? Because my friends, if it isn't, we can just stop coming here, it's a waste of time. We can go do something more entertaining. And we have no hope because Jesus remains in the grave. But he doesn't. He's been risen. And because he lives, we also shall live. Because he lives, he is living Lord. And we have hope in life and death. And you, the church, you're the light of the world. This week, it's you, the light of the world. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, it's kind of hard for me to believe at times that you would use a sinner like me as a light for this dark world. But your scripture tells me that's exactly what you intend to do. And you desire to do it through each of us because our faith is not futile. We are not still in our sins. We've been released from shame and guilt and sin and we've been brought into new life through Jesus Christ our Lord and we have so many good reasons to believe that God raised him from the dead and therefore we will move forward in confidence. Lord, would you help us to live in confidence with the truth of the resurrection, not just to try to be good people, not just to go to church because it's the thing to do, but to live it out though this week, that because Christ gave his all for me, I will give my all for him. Do you need to live a little bit more this week as if this message is true? Is that you today? Would you just raise your hand if you say, I need to live a little bit more this week as if this message is true? Yeah. Just about all of us could say we need to live with a greater confidence and boldness before Christ because we believe the resurrection is true and Christ is the hope of the world. Maybe today you say, I've never actually embraced Jesus as my Lord. I've never asked for forgiveness for my sins. And if today you'd like to do that, it's as simple as this. You can admit that you have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You can believe that Jesus Christ died for those sins, that he loves you and he offers to forgive you through the cross. You can believe that God rose Jesus from the dead. And then you can simply commit, I will follow Christ. I don't know all the answers. I still have some prayers, but I will follow Christ. And if that's you today, that you say, I've been away from Jesus for a long time, where I've never actually given my life to Christ, and you've heard something today that you say, I want that. And I believe that perhaps this is actually true. Maybe today would be the day that you would just say to God, I receive you. If that's you today, well, our eyes are closed. Would you just raise your hand? You say, I, I, I want to follow Christ today. Sister, I see you in the back. I see you. And my brother in the back, I see you. 
just raise your hand a little bit and would you just pray with me quietly? Nobody's looking at you. Would you pray with me quietly? I'm going to lead you in a simple prayer and you simply follow me, okay? I admit to you, God, that I am a sinner. Would you say that to God? I admit to you that I need your grace to forgive me. believe that you, Jesus, you died for me and you rose again. And so I believe that you are Lord. And then finally, I commit myself to following you. I commit myself to following you. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me. You just tell them, thank you, Jesus, for saving me. Let's say this together. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for saving me. Father, we thank you that your word is true. We thank you that you backed it all up by rising your son from the grave, and so we can trust in you with confidence. We give you all glory now. In Christ's name we pray.